Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, our topic today is intuition. Ooh. Yes, uh, we're going to talk about what intuition really is, like what people mean when they talk about intuition, where our intuitions come from, um, whether intuition and reason are opposed, like whether there are alternative methods of uh, drawing conclusions about the world or whether they're compatible in some way, um, and when intuition might be useful, if it can be useful, um, and when it can be particularly misleading. So the word intuition comes from the Latin, as a lot of words do, uh, intuere, and intuere means knowledge from within. So, mm -hmm. which is, I, I think, actually a pretty good description of how most people think about intuition, right? That there's something yeah, inside that's... us that tells us what to do. Right. So I think that's a great umbrella um, definition, but it still leaves open the question of that knowledge from within, where did that knowledge come from, right? <laughs> right. I mean, so it, it, the word is sometimes used to mean um, knowledge that you've sort of built up over time through practice and experience, um, which, you know, has all been sort of stored in some way in your brain, but which you don't have like conscious deliberative access to. Right. So you might have an intuition about a situation as being dangerous, even though you, you, you aren't consciously thinking about, well, here are the reasons it's dangerous. There's just, you've learned patterns and rules and, um, or, you know, maybe a, a chess player, uh, an expert chess player might have an intuition that a certain move will be good. Uh, and that's just something he's developed through years and years, thousands and thousands of games. He's learned that certain patterns on the board tend to reward certain kinds of moves. So that, uh, that kind of intuition is actually can be quite reliable um, because it's based on actual data as long right. as it's being synthesized properly in an unbiased way. But or, that one is domain specific. That is domain specific. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I actually, I, you know, looking back, the first example I gave of, of, of feeling like a situation might be dangerous without being able to articulate exactly why that's not, that's a bit of a misleading example. I now realize because it sort of blurs into the second category right. of intuition, which is, um, intuitions that come from some sort of innate or evolved, uh, you know, predisposition. That's right. Uh, an instinct. So it's an instinct. Yeah. Effect. Which might be relevant in the current modern context at hand and it might not. Right. Um, you know, we might have, an instinct that people who are attractive are more likely to be telling the truth. Um, but, you know, that yeah, kind of halo even, effect I don't know not... how that ever, ever came about, even in, even in evolutionary time. I, yeah, I don't know that well, that was ever true. Yeah, but, so it's hard, sure. to, it's hard to look back and, and see what the roots were of things like this because, yeah. you know, in, in the ancestral environment, we weren't trying to convince each other of things. So, you know, so somehow our brains are like are trying to extrapolate uh, in you know the way they work from how they were evolved to work. And somehow that has resulted in, in us trusting attractive people more. But anyway, um, and then, so then the third main category of intuition that I've noticed or way of referring to intuition that 
I've noticed people use is as sort of like a supernatural sixth sense. Right. So yes, it comes from within you, but but the question of where that knowledge within you came from is just left with this sort of mysterious question mark. You know, right. it's just in there, and you just know. Uh, and there's not any any attempt made at an explanation of how you just know. You know, even if you're not consciously figuring something out, like you would think there's still some reason that you're having the intuition you do, but that tends to be left intentionally blank. Right. So one, one thing that I think we, we should clear out right at the beginning is that there is actually research uh, on intuition. So it's, oh, yeah. we're not just using our intuition about to talk about intuitions. We, we, we actually, there is quite a bit of research in cognitive science in the last several years. And in fact, most of it, uh, well, I shouldn't say most of it, but a, a, a good um, chunk of it actually does deal with things like chess playing. Because mm-hmm. there, it's clear that's clearly an activity that is that you can do deliberately and you know through rational, express, uh, explicit rational thinking. But it's also clearly an area where, as you said, uh, the more expert you become, the more actually you shift to uh, sort of intuitive uh, responses, heuristics that you developed by by practice. Yeah, I think they've done some experiments where they had expert chess players play something like ten games in parallel. So clearly they didn't have the cognitive resources to be devoting to each particular game. And yet they still did really well. Um, The only explanation being that they were using these intuitive heuristics for what were good moves. An even more telling experiment about chess is uh, um, this way in which the the, um, chess players were first put in in front of an actual uh, situation on the chessboard, meaning a situation that can actually occur on the Mm -hmm. chessboard. And they were asked what to do. And they, of course, got it right most of the time because they, they were, f- you know, familiar, if not with the specific situation, certainly they developed a sort of a sense of what would work under similar circumstances. Right. And when you say a situation that could occur, you mean like an arrangement of pieces that that you could end up arriving at if you started exactly. with the normal beginning and exactly. like made moves. Exactly. Yeah. And then they were put in front of a, a situation that actually is was completely random. It was not, there was not actually a likely situation or that it could not possibly occur under normal conditions of a game, in which case their intuitions about what to do even a chess master intuition about what to do was just as good as any 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 novice oh, wow. because there's That's nothing such a striking yeah, result it, it was pretty that. striking now so so those experiments and others in other domains of expertise um such as for instance being a nurse uh or you know or, or teaching mathematics you know there's all sorts of research similar uh, that is similar research that's been done in these other domain of expertise they all seem to point out that there is certainly such a thing as intuition that is domain specific but there, it, that there isn't any such thing as being generally intuitive. So when somebody right. says to you, oh, I'm, I'm an intuitive person, that is nonsense. It's got, there's no such thing as an intuitive person. Although the only caveat that one can possibly have about that is that there is such a thing about, presumably, about being intuitive about social situations. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you say, if, if, if when, when somebody says, I'm an intuitive person, they actually mean... I have a good sense of social situations and how to react or navigate them. Right, that actually is possible. Right, that's yeah, possible right, because right, that right. is a domain of expertise in, 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 in some sense. But being intuitive across the board makes no sense. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the main misinterpretations of uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, the, uh, the popular science book that was published a few years back. Same. Yes. Um, that I, I, you know, uh, I skimmed it. I don't remember the particulars of the book, but I know that. Um, that at least based on the evidence that he gives in that book, the thesis, whether he makes this explicit or not, is that is that intuition can be can lead to better results if you you know have a lot of expertise in that particular domain. Right. Um, but the way that it's generally quoted when people talk about it, you know, colloquially, is that 
is that relying on your intuition, you know, in sort of snap judgments in general will lead to better outcomes than, yes. you know, deliberative reasoning. Yeah, that is actually the most of not, not the case. Uh, um, and in fact, again, there's quite an interesting literature about it. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out is actually that the, apparently the first modern um, psychologist to think along the lines of intuition and rational decision-making as two different but interacting processes was none other than the father of modern psychology, William James. Mm -hmm. uh, so he actually um, uh, distinguished basically the two, two modes of cognition. Uh, intuition, uh, according to James, works in an associative manner. Uh, it feels uh, effortless, so it's fast. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it works without essentially the, the subject realizing what's going on. On the other hand, rational thinking is analytical. It does require effort and it's much slower, but it tends to be more accurate. So there are those situations where, which I, it's easy to come up with examples where, you know, because you do not have enough um, uh, time, you're under time constraints or other time constraints, you actually do need to rely on the, on the intuition. But there is also, it's also easy to come up with examples where the intuition actually fails, especially uh, one of the, the, the most common area where intuitions fail is by probability theory. Right, right. Um, base rate neglect, I think, is one of my favorite For examples instance. where they, um, they'll ask people uh, – the common example is that there's, there's a test, you know, say, for breast cancer and – um, the test has breast cancer, you know, occurs in one out of every thousand women in the relevant population, and the test has a p false positive rate of say five percent. And so the question presented to subjects is: um, Let's say a person tests positive for breast cancer. What is the chance that that person actually has the disease, um, knowing nothing else about the person's symptoms and signs and so on? And and so people know that the test, you know, is occasionally wrong. Um, so they say, you know. Well, you know, false positive rate of 5%, maybe it's, you know, like 90% chance or 85% chance that the person actually has breast cancer. The correct answer is 2%. <laughs> so wildly often, the problem there is that people are not taking into account the base rate of breast cancer in the population. So breast right. cancer is so rare in the population, one in a thousand, that even if you get a positive result on this test... Um, it's still much more likely that the test was wrong than that you actually have breast cancer. And so, yeah, this is a systematic bias that we have, that we, don't, we neglect the base rate and we, we overweight the, uh, the recent evidence or, you know, the, the case-specific evidence. And that's a great example of what you were saying uh, a few minutes ago, which is, you know, that is clearly an area, prob probability estimates in fairly complex situations. It's clearly an area where you wouldn't expect evolution to have owned much of a, of a, of a you know, instinct because right. it, we hardly had to deal with complex situations like right. that. Oh, and I should also qualify what I just said, that um, the, the problem as it's traditionally presented is with percentages, mm -hmm. you know, the, the percentage of the population, what percent of the time is the test wrong. But when you rephrase the, the question in terms of frequencies, um, so you say, you know, one in a thousand people or, you know, um, five in uh -huh. a hundred times, that sort of thing, um, then people are much more able to get the right answer, right. which does, it totally fits with the explanation that we're used to thinking in, you know, numbers of things. We're not used to thinking in terms Correct. of percentages. Correct. Um, so our, our intuitions have evolved in that way. Oh, and I should also mention that, that even uh, medical students and staff uh, and doctors tend to get this question wrong at, at a, right. a much higher rate than you would hope. Yeah, so it, it, this you know probability theory is complex enough that actually does require quite a bit of training, uh, and so that explains why most people don't have cor correct intuitions about about probability. Mm -hmm. Now, um, one of the things that I, to, to point out, uh, I want to go back for a minute to, to James' distinction between um, sort of the two modes of operating or processing information in the brain. 
which I'm, I'm sure it's a simplification because the brain operates in you know probably many more than just two uh, basic categories, but but those are distinct enough and interesting enough for our, for our purposes. Now um, we've we talked in the past um, uh, often about the fact that of course these days you can't talk about X without talking about the neurobiology of X, <laughs> and in this case it's intuition, and that's there's no exception. So now the research today is interesting uh, for a variety of reasons. There's one just just one bit of information I want to uh, point out because it does help make sense of what most people think of intuitions and why so many people are so strongly attached to their intuitions. So, you know, the rational decision-making involves, of course, the prefrontal cortex. It's where, that's, that's where, uh, you know, our, our uh, conscious thinking, rational thinking, and it's slow, as we said earlier. Uh, it's accurate, but it's, it's, it's slow and it's time-consuming time and effort-consuming. Now, if you look at the, at the areas that are, tend to be more involved, according to neurobiologists, with intuition, on the other hand, these include the amygdala, the basal ganglia, the nucleus accumbens, uh, the lateral temporal cortex, and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Now, the, the important one, or one of the important ones that I just of those that I just mentioned, is the amygdala. Why? Because that's also the seat of strong uh, emotional reactions. So apparently, one of the reasons we have this gut feeling about our intuitions—we're so sure that our intuitions are correct—it's because they are reinforced emotion. They're connected emotionally through mm-hmm. the amygdala. So we really rely a lot on intuitions. We have this, this, the gut feeling is actually very strong. There's an emotional attachment, which should not necessarily uh, originate with, uh, you know, with rational uh, decision-making, uh, d- d- deliberation. So, mm-hmm. so the neurobiology there helps actually um, to understand, to yeah. parse this, the, the, the process and understand it better. Um, I, I just wanted to go back to something you said a bit earlier about the um, when uh, deliberative reasoning can fail. I think you talked a bit about how deliberative, deliberative reasoning can fail you when you don't have a lot of time. But there are actually a couple of other interesting cases where deliberative reasoning fails. Um, uh, well, first it can fail when there's just too many factors for you to consider. And so right. you, you just get overwhelmed and you end up picking in sort of a more random or arbitrary way uh, in your deliberative reasoning attempts than you would if you just used intuition, where you would like just you would intuitively focus on a few of the most salient or, or you know emotionally uh, fraught, um, emotionally weighted aspects of the situation. You would just decide based on those, and that's not as good as being completely deliberative and taking everything into account. But it's still better than like throwing up your hands and kind of picking right. randomly, which is what people tend to do when they get overwhelmed by all of the different factors. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other way that deliberative reasoning can fail people. There have been a, a few recent studies about this where people were asked to choose between, I think they tried a number of comparisons, like choose between cars to purchase, choose between yeah. insurance packages, a few other uh, comparisons, usually of the sort of what do you want to purchase uh, sort. And and some subjects they asked to make the decision just intuitively or, you know, go with your gut. And some subjects were asked to, like, write out pros and cons or to, like, look at these tables of, of you know, what the mileage of the car is, what the costs of the different cars are. Right. And, like, add, you know, weights to the different factors and come up with a total score for each car and make your decision that way. And um, for the most part, the, the people in that deliberative reasoning group tended to uh, be less happy with the choice that they eventually made. Hmm. And the interpretation uh, was that people, when asked to pay attention to these, uh, like when asked to uh, use deliberative reasoning, people pay attention to quantifiable things like the mileage of the car and and the cost and, and so on. But they don't 
they don't know how to quantify things like their subjective liking of the car. So they just leave that out of their calculation. But that's right. obviously a really important factor in whether you're going to end up happy with your choice. Mm, right. And just because you can't quantify it doesn't mean it's not rational. That's right. a typical um, a typical fallacy that, that I hear people uh, make. Like, clearly, if it, if it affects your happiness, it is rational to take it into account. Absolutely. Right. Even though so you might people, not be able to, to quantify yeah, it. Yeah, and of course, yeah, it is impossible to com- precisely quantify. But even, you know... Even acknowledging that it's important and trying roughly to quantify right. how much you like it would go a long way towards making these kinds of calculations more effective. Right. I, I want to um, mention research that I, that I encountered that, that I found very interesting. Again, going back to this interaction between the, the, the intuitive uh, processing and sort of the, the rational deliberation processing of information. So this is by um, Adam Alter uh, at Princeton, and he had also collaborators at um, uh, Harvard and the University of Chicago. They, they published, this group published a number of papers over the last few years on these on these issues so what, it, what one of the things they did was to show that there are standard situations where where people switch from intuitive to explicit analysis of a given problem and mm-hmm. they investigated what under what condition this happens and so they, they found that usually what happens is that they switch from into people switch from intuitive to explicit analysis when they have something personal at stake in the outcome, hmm. like if they're likely to lose money on a bad decision or something like that, then they trust their intuition less uh, and they're more, more careful, more deliberate about it. And also, if people are under, however, on the other end, on the contrary, if people are under time pressure or they experience what is called a cognitive load, so mm-hmm. that they're busy doing a bunch of other things at the same right. time, uh, then they will rely on intuition because it's faster and it's, a, it's, right. a, it's a, as a heuristic. Now, Alter and his colleagues have, have also investigated the effect of what they call disfluency. And I, I found this, this fascinating. So disfluency is a measure of how comfortable you are with the information that you're receiving. And how they comfortable? Yes. So comfortable as... No, no, no. As in the way, uh, how easily you can process that oh, information. Okay. So for instance... Uh, they, they say they, they argue that neurologically, from a neurological perspective, this fluency triggers uh, the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, which activates the prefrontal cortex where much of our analytical thinking is done. So the more disfluent the information is, the more likely you are to engage the rational, deliberative uh, decision-making. Now, how do you make people disfluent about mm-hmm. things? So one, in one case, what they did, what they simply gave um, the same problem to solve to people, but in one case, they wrote it in clearly legible type font, and in another case, right. they wrote it in a, in a type font that was a bit more difficult to read. Oh, I've- and they controlled mm. for the fact that it wasn't just the slowing down that caused the difference mm-hmm. because you can, you can manipulate the, the time uh, that people spend on the problem independently. And so it was just the fact that they had to, the people had to make more of an effort in the, to read the more difficult font. That switched them from, uh, from uh, intuitive to deliberative um, decision-making. I, I think I've heard about this in the context of moral decision-making, that people are more likely yeah. to use intuitive That's first. Right. I think Joshua Nob alluded to this research when mm-hmm. he was our guest. That's right. There is, a, there is an equivalent to moral decision-making. Yeah. Now, here, get this. Okay. You can cause yourself disfluency. Huh. And in a very easy way. So if you want to force yourself to switch from intuitive to um, to deliberative um, decision making, uh-huh. apparently the only thing you need to do is to uh, uh, furrow your brows. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, so wow. that it mimics the the sort of the typical uh, like I'm a thinker now. Yeah, I'm a thinker. Right. The, the typical <laughs> expression we associate with thinking. Well, that's enough to trigger the the areas of the brain that are involved in deliberate thinking. And so you are actually a thinker, as it turns out, if you just act like a thinker. Wow. I thought that's that was just fascinating. And, yeah. And empathetic. <laughs> it is kind of pathetic, but you know, next time you want to put your your thinking cap, I have a thinking cap in my office at uh, at Lehman College. Somewhere 
what Wait, one of my. I, I sometimes I can't tell when you're being that literal actually or, that actually is true. I literal? didn't make it. Yeah, you it, have it, a thinking cap. I do. Uh, it's, what does it's, it look like? It it's um, um it basically a inverted uh, lampshade. <laughs> Of metal that somebody previously in in the office <laughs> labeled thinking cap, and I don't use it. But, okay, but photo, it's, photo for the website <laughs> yes, <laughs> next time. We need a photo. <laughs> so um, sorry. So you were <laughs> saying you have a thinking cap, and then I derailed you. Right. No. So so the point of these these experiments is that uh, it's remarkably easy to manipulate, basically, either even in a self induced way. Uh, the balance between intuition and uh, and deliberate thinking, uh, depending on what's at stake, on whether you have cognitive load from other tasks, or even simply from taking the attitude of adopting the attitude of, of, of a thinker, you sort of switch things around. Mm-hmm. It's I, I think it's you know a that, useful hint. I bet that could be really useful information for say charities when they're trying to. Uh, persuade people that a problem is important based on statistics. Uh, you know, people's inclination usually is to be more persuaded by like a moving story than to be persuaded by, look, these tens of thousands of you know people are suffering, or these tens of thousands of creatures are dying, and so on and so forth. Right. So maybe the statistics would have more impact on people, or, or maybe people would be more willing to see like the potential benefit of their their dollars donated or something if the charity you know printed their letter in a really hard to read font <laughs> or something like that. Um, That's right. I talked earlier about how deliberative reasoning can go awry, but there's a few other examples of how intuitive reasoning can go awry that we haven't touched on yet that I think are interesting. Um, so uh, it can, it, I mean, there are these evolutionarily uh, programmed cases that we mentioned um, where, you know, the current situation is not relevant to the situation in which our, our intuitions were programmed. And, uh, and then there are sort of these like probabilistic reasoning errors we have. But there's also, in general, I think a good rule to follow that uh, intuition tends to be less reliable in cases where, um, where the problem you're considering is not something that you have experienced with in the past, or it's sort of an unprecedented problem. Um, like, uh, like, say you're trying to decide um, how likely artificial intelligence is to lead to, you know, some sort of catastrophe. Um, you might rely on your intuition, um, but you have to consider the fact that your intuition in this case uh, it just has no similar problems to have been shaped on. Like, you know, a problem like uh, artificial intelligence or any other kind of existential risk uh we don't have any examples like that. So we, it's hard to think that we could rely on our intuition to tell us what's going to happen or, or what we should do. Um, and similarly, in, in problems like this, there tend to be, uh, you can often notice other factors that have contributed to your intuition that shouldn't have, like epistemically. Like, uh, you know, if, again, to take the example of artificial intelligence, uh, if you're using your intuition to consider how dangerous that might be, um, you have to think about the fact that your intuition is probably shaped by fiction because you've read a lot of stories <laughs> about ro- robot apocalypses and you know AI explosions that took over the world. There are not very many stories about AI going in a nice, boring, pleasant way. So, so I guess the takeaway here is that being able to recognize where your intuition comes from can help you decide when it's a good guide in a, in a particular problem. Yeah, no, that's, that, that is a, it's a very good point. Um, I want to come back also to this idea of expertise um, because as it turns out, there is research that shows how intuition and uh, deliberate thinking uh, interact over time to build expertise. As it turns out, simplifying things a little bit, uh, there are, broadly speaking, three phases to becoming an expert. Mm-hmm. And they're actually 
the, the, the interesting thing that I found in the literature on expertise is that they're remarkably similar, almost regardless of the field of expertise you're talking about. So these three phases that I'm gonna, about to dis- discuss in a minute uh, apply whether you want to become a chess master or a tennis player, professional tennis player or whatever in, in between. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's both sort of intellectual um, as well as uh, sort of practical applications. All right, so the first um, phase uh, is when the beginner uh, focuses uh, her attention simply on, on understanding what it is that needs to be done, the mm-hmm. task, task at hand, right? Uh, and, and basically, mostly on not making mistakes. Think, think of the first time you, you start uh, uh, trying to learn to, to drive a car, for instance, right? The, you, you, you need conscious attention uh, and to a lot of different things, and particularly to avoid mistakes, especially mistakes that can cost somebody's life or, or your car, at least. Now, in the second phase, um, the, this kind of conscious attention shifts toward, the, you know, uh, about the basic tasks, shifts toward a more intuitive level. So the individual performs things quasi-automatically. Uh, again, think about driving a car. Uh, you, you, you're sort of, your body and your mind memorize and internalize these, the basic movements so you can actually drive a car now when you're listening to the radio or mm-hmm. talking to somebody else, hopefully not on the phone. Uh, or not texting, but nonetheless, you can do a lot of, of, of other things, and it is you're much more relaxed because there's a lot that goes on that's actually being shifted automatically to the to the to the unconscious. Now, here's the problem. So, the, the good news is that usually it takes in whatever the field is, it takes actually a fairly short period of time to go from the first to the second phase. The bad news is it takes a lot more time and effort to get from the second to the third phase. In mm-hmm. this case, in the example of the driving, if you want to become you know, a NASCAR driver or a Formula Uno driver or something like that, or a chess master. Um, what happened is that the initial improvement was aided by switching control from conscious thought to intuition, right? Then uh, until the task becomes automatic and faster. But then further improvement requires actually mindful attention, focus on the areas where you still make mistakes, Okay, mm-hmm. and um, and that is actually and it requires a lot of effort, a conscious effort to correct those mistakes. This is in fact often referred to as deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. So this is the situation where, let's say, a soccer player or, or or a tennis player that are good enough, they're they're actually pretty good. They have a good intuition about the game and everything, but they still make mistakes in terms of you know they need to correct the form of you know certain details of what they do. That one becomes very difficult because your brain has automated a lot of that stuff, and now it's sort of. Now, now it's up to you to sort of go back into the uh, subconscious and, and and fish out the stuff that you're not doing well mm. and focus on your attention De-automate. mindfully. Exactly. Yeah. De-automate until you understand where the mistake is corrected and then re-automate. And the bad news, as I said, is that this is a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of time. Yeah, I think that's actually really useful information because I personally, I've I've... Often found myself in situations where I'm like, oh, I'd like to become better at, oh Lord, like what? Let's say I don't know, small talk. Let's say I, I will, I'd like to become better at small talk. Oh yeah, um, I wanted that too. Uh, yeah. So let, let me know if you I can, mean, if you well, manage. I, I was just going to say that I, um, I tend to gravitate towards the the assumption that I can just do a lot of it and I will gradually become better. But it sounds, I always sort of had this sneaking suspicion that I might have to actually work harder at becoming better at it instead of just doing it a lot and hoping that it just gradually, you know, improves itself (laughs) in my, in my brain. So it sounds like that's what you're saying. Unfortunately. Yeah. That's, it turns out you need mindful attention apparently. Um, Mm -hmm. Now the, the, this last phase of sort of moving from somebody who is simply good at what, at doing a certain thing to actually becoming an expert, um, 
as I said, it's actually remarkably similar across fields, and mm-hmm. it, it's measured into the several tens of thousands of hours, which basically means roughly about 10 years to become an expert in a particular field. Um, and the levels of expertise themselves can actually be, you can have more than one level of expertise. So, for instance, in the case of chess players, which is one of, as we said earlier, one of the cases that where, where most studies have been, have been done, uh, it takes about 10 years to become a professional player, but it takes then another 10 years or so to become a master level player. And by the way, that, that has very little to do with sort of native ability. You know, a lot of some people think that, oh, well, but there's some geniuses who are really good and all that. Well, as it turns out, even the geniuses do need to do mindful practice to actually mm-hmm. become masters. Uh, even if you have a talent for something, first of all, a lot of the times talent is actually simply being precocious about, about something. Mm-hmm. It's not that you're necessarily much better than other people. It's that you get there much earlier in, in life. But even when there is native talent, uh, if you want to move from talent to actual mastering and expertise, it, you still need to go to this mindful uh, attention phase, which unfortunately it's pretty long. It's, there doesn't seem to be a shortcut uh, mm-hmm. for that one. Um, I just wanted to point out that I've noticed uh, a number of there's there's a lot of objections to the idea of rationality from sort of the general population, but most interesting to me are the objections to rationality from um, like smart, educated, uh, empirically minded, presumably um, rational, presumably pretty <laughs> rational people who will say things like, "Well, you know, you don't want to be too rational." And so I, I gave this talk at Skepticon uh, mm-hmm. last fall about trying to explore where these ideas come from. Um, it was called the Straw Vulcan. So I, I was talking about <laughs> this this sort of caricature of rationality that you see in movies and TV, um, like uh, like the Vulcans. Yeah, in Star I'm, go- Trek. I'm going uh, as uh, just now in this last few weeks through the entire Star Trek original series. So I know exactly. Fun. Yeah, yeah, I had video clips from the original series in my talk to illustrate I, the different misconceptions about rationality. You no, know, I didn't realize uh, how in the first season, especially things changed later in the second and third seasons. The original Star Trek only only lasted three seasons but in the first although there were long seasons there were 25 episodes per season but in the first season mccoy is really nasty to spock yeah he really is <laughs> you know, later, later on they develop they, this more playful thing but initially the guy is really on his case it's like wow yeah they sort of like the writers decided decided we need a, a foil you know and they Apparently. just like went with that 120 percent. all right so what um, about the story oh right so i just wanted to say that one of the reasons that i've perceived um, generally rational people to, to believe things like it's possible to be too rational is that they're, they're, uh, they're conflating the rational-irrational distinction with the um, system uh, intuid, intuitive-deliberative distinction. Uh-huh. I was about to say system one, system two, and then I remembered we haven't used those terms yet in this no. podcast, but that's actually... But we can do that. The, yeah, that's actually a common way that psychologists or you know, cognitive psychologists talk about intuition and deliberative reasoning as system one mm. and system two. They're just kind of boring names, so yeah. I don't use them very much, but... Um, that's like type one and type two error in, in statistics. So boring. Um, and they don't, not only boring, but there's the type three error type three error. Yeah. It's never remembering what that's type one and type two. Exactly. Exactly. They give you no clue to remember what (laughs) they refer to, but yes, system one, intuition, system two, deliberative reasoning. Um, and, and so, so my point in the talk when, when I was discussing, you know, intuition versus deliberative reasoning is that both systems as Massimo, you and I have discussed in the episode have their strengths and weaknesses and, and rationality is about trying to to find the truest path to an accurate picture of reality, um, or about you know trying to find trying to optimize your decision making to you know to best achieve your goals, whatever they are. 
And so you don't rely on system two blindly. Of course, you, you decide based on this particular context, which method is going to be the most likely one to get me, you know, most reliably to the truth or get me most reliably to achieving my goals. And so if you're in a situation that's really pressed for time or where you can't consider all the relevant factors, then the rational thing to do is to use your intuition. Or if you know that you're a chess master with a lot of experience, you use your intuition. That's the most rational thing to do. But I think that people can, when they say it's possible to be too rational, they're thinking it's possible to be too deliberative. Right, too analytical. Too analytical in situations where it's not actually the best strategy for achieving the truth or your goals. Yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. so I agree with that point. I just think that they're using the word rational there erroneously. That's that's a very interesting distinction. Um, I have one more piece of research that I want to show, uh, bring up because I found it interesting. This this gets mm, a little closer to the question of expertise as opposed to the question of intuition per se. But as we said, uh, the two are actually very much involved with each other because you know the, the intuition is a crucial part of, of becoming an expert. But there is some research uh, that shows um, how people become experts, uh, and, and that that what that means is that you have structured knowledge which becomes intuitive mm-hmm. at some point about certain situations. And I found this particular example uh, uh, interesting as well as sort of amusing. Uh, Two researchers uh, named uh, Cindy Mello-Silver and Merav Green-Pfeffer have investigated the the, the difference between superficial and structural knowledge, in other words, between the the novice and sort of the expert, uh, in the particular case of people's understanding of aquaria. Of you know, Aquaria? Yeah, that's right. So tanks with fish. Oh, aquariums. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, oh you were just saying it in a fancy way. That was just the fancy okay, plural way. Anyway, so what they did, they compared four groups of people and their understanding of, of, uh, of fish tanks. <laughs> Children, right? Naive adults. These are adults that have no particular interest in the subject matter. Oh, naive um, with respect to this particular subject. To, exa- Not exactly. just naive people exactly. in general. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, and two different types of experts. One were biologists. And the other one were, you know, with an interest in ecology. And the other ones were hobbyists who care and, and you know, and build aquarium. Hobbyists? Hobbyists, yes. <laughs> All right. So the non-surprising part of the research is, of course, that children and naive adults displayed, you know, a very simple understanding of the workings of, the, of an aquarium. They had no structural knowledge of, the, of, the, of how aquaria work. But the experts, on the other hand, well, of course, uh, you know, they appreciated the systemic functioning of an aquarium and they could describe sort of multiple causal pathways affecting the enclosed ecosystem, etc. But there were differences. The biologists explained things in terms of, and therefore conceptualized things in terms of the science of ecosystems. At a, you know, at a very abstract theoretical level, they, they thought of aquaria as a microcosm of, natural, of a natural ecosystem. Hmm. The hobbyists, on the other hand, built their model. They were also experts, and they came up with the same similar conclusions to the biologists, but their structural knowledge was built around the mental model of practical issues, dealing with filtering systems, feeding systems, you know, anything that plays in, in, in a direct role in actually keeping an aquarium you know, good-looking and, 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 uh, and clean. <laughs> so the idea is that not only... Intuition and deliberative, you know, combination of intuition and deliberative thinking uh, uh, are the path, the long-term path to to um, expertise. But there can be more than one type of structural knowledge, and therefore more than one type of expertise, even on the same domain. 
which means that I suspect that the biologists are actually going to have different intuitions from the hobbyists in this case about Aquaria when in certain areas because it's likely that their structural knowledge being structured differently and being based on the different kind of intuitions um, it may in, in, under certain conditions lead the two to make different decisions or, or to formulate a different understanding of of, of of the system, the complex system that they're interested in. Um, but one's still going to be more right than the other. Oh, well, it depends on, on the kind of question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, depending right, on right. the problem. Right, right. Right. Oh, while we're sharing uh, fun research related to intuition, I have just a couple of my favorite examples of, um, of intuitions gone awry that I'd like to share. Um, one of them is a, a problem that I think it's been, it's sort of a, a staple on various um, deliberative reasoning tests. Like, not measuring people's ability to do deliberative reasoning, but their inclination to do deliberative reasoning. Ah. So questions to which you will get the wrong answer if you don't use deliberative reasoning. Right. Um, they're, they're easy once you do, but you know, you'll get them wrong if you don't. So this question uh, was given to, uh, among other subjects, a class at Princeton. Um, the, the question is, a bat and a ball together add up to a dollar and ten cents. That's how much they cost together. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Mm-hmm. I'm going to wait a minute for our listeners to think about it. Okay. Okay, so the, the answer which 50% of the class at Princeton gave, uh, which is the intuitive system one answer, is that um, uh, 10 cents, that the ball costs 10 cents. Because you look at a dollar ten, and you look at a dollar, and you take away the dollar, and you get 10 cents. Um, so essentially, like... What you're doing there with that process is you're not really thinking about the problem. You're just sort of feeling around for like, well, you know, what do problems like this generally involve? Well, generally you take one thing away from another. So I'll do that. Um, Of course, that's not actually the right answer, because if the ball was 10 cents and the bat was a dollar, then the bat would, you know, cost 90 cents more than the ball, not a dollar more than the ball. The right answer is five cents. Um, So it just, you know, it shows how quickly that, you know, people, even, you know, smart, well-educated people reach for the system one answer even on a test of reasoning, which presumably these right. people knew that they were, they were being tested on. Um, and, and then the other example of, of this intuitive reasoning that I, I find so amusing and kind of endearing is a classic social psychology experiment in which uh, researchers sent someone to wait in line at a copy machine, and then uh, they, the subject asked the person ahead of them, excuse me, do you mind if I cut in line? And uh, maybe about 50 or 40% of them agreed to let the, uh, the subject cut in line ahead of them. But when the experimenters redid the study and had the subject ask, instead of, can I cut in front of you, but can I cut in front of you because I need to make copies? Then the, <laughs> then the ascent rate went up to like 95% or something. Because really now high. they have a reason. Now they have a reason. It sounds like a reason. <laughs> like, but of, I mean, of course they need to make copies. It's the only reason they would have to cut in line at a copy machine. Um, but, but because the request was phrased... In you know terms of giving a reason, our system one reasoning kicks in, and we go, oh, they have a reason. So sure, you have a reason. <laughs> go ahead. You know, when I, it, it is when I hear uh, these kinds of things that I'm reminded of Pete Barnum's uh, saying that there's a sucker born every minute, and apparently most of us actually are in that category, at least <laughs> under some circumstances. Yep, yep, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, we are just about running out of time, uh, and we have a couple of good picks for this episode. So uh, we will wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. (music) 
Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is... Uh, I'm continuing my trend of of diverging from the standard book, website, movie, article model. Um, my website, or my pick is a, an infographic this week. Uh-huh. Um, so basically, this is from the website Information is Beautiful, which is a great source of, of really elegant and clever and interesting ways of depicting um, important data. So, uh, so this one is called Snake Oil? Scientific Evidence for Popular Health Supplements. And uh, it's, I thought it, it fit really well into our wheelhouse for at least a couple of reasons. Um, first, because the field of health and nutrition is just such a difficult field to pick through and find reliable information about. Um, I find it personally very daunting. I tend to just throw up my hands and let you know other people I trust who have more time on their hands and more patience than me um, go through it. But so, so this, this infographic displays... Um, various uh, like nutritional supplements ranging from you know things like fish oil to um, antioxidants to minerals like iron um, just anything that you could take as a as a supplement to your diet and it graphs them on this sort of um, constantly uh, changing bubble chart um, in which the um, the bubbles that sort of float up to the top of the chart are mm-hmm. the ones with the most reliable evidence for mm-hmm. them. Um, and yeah, then I'm looking if you at scroll, it now. It's really beautiful. It's beautiful, <laughs> yeah. And it's you can sort of see as when you load the page, the bubbles sort of like form and like gradually um, uh, like nudge each other aside until they they settle into place. And that um, their like hierarchy relative to each other depends on the current state of the evidence. I believe it's updated regularly. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's just like a really clear, intuitive way of seeing what the top studies are. And then, um, it's also just a cool infographic because it conveys so much information in a really clear and non-confusing way. So the size of the bubble, each bubble is a particular supplement like garlic or green tea or vitamin D. And then, um, the size of the bubble conveys, um, how popular it is in terms of Google hits. So the big bubbles represent things that people care about. Um, and then you, it's also a nice uh, study in economy of information display. So it's of course important to know what uh, condition the the supplement is potentially useful for, because sup- something might be really useful for you know heart disease, but not at all useful for right. Alzheimer's. So um, when you scroll your mouse over the bubble, it'll tell you what that particular supplement is being um, is being considered successful or unsuccessful with regard to. Um, and yeah, and then the the color of the bubble. There are a few bubbles that are that are small or kind of far down, but they're colored orange so that you can see that like the research is really accelerating in that area. So it's one to watch. Um, so this is this has sort of become my favorite source of information about uh, diet and health oh, supplements, both both functionally and just like aesthetically. Very good. So my pick, on the other hand, is a book um, which I have not finished. So I. But probably, arguably, shouldn't really recommend it. So your pick it. is like the first two-thirds of this book? About, or, just yeah? about. Um, so I, I find it interesting as an idea. It's well-written, and um, uh, it certainly is, is, is thought-provoking. The, the book is um, Zombie Economics, How Dead Ideas Still Walk Among Us. And it is by a uh, New Zealand-based um, uh, economist, John Quiggin. And uh, it, the, the basic idea is that there are, are, there's a number of ideas in economics that are dead and should be buried because they've been shown not to work. And they, just like zombies, come back to life. <laughs> 
um, presumably, you know, against the evidence, in spite of the evidence, and presumably because there are sort of political mm -hmm. or ideological interests and so on and so forth. So the book actually goes through um, uh, five major ones, major major ideas. Um, I found, for instance, the the article about the great moderation. Uh, which is the very first chapter, particularly interesting. The great, so the great moderation is this idea that the markets at some point in history have been tamed hmm. and that, that, that these oscillations you know, with, with bubbles and bursts have gone away. And this time they've gone away for, for sure forever because you know, we figured it out how to tame the market. Apparently this idea, which is called the great moderation, has been actually proposed several times and sure enough, several times it's been shown to be wrong because then a bubble actually has occurred and then it has burst. Um, and the last incarnation of this great moderation idea was was popular until 2007. And, of course, in 2008, we had the, um, the worldwide collapse of, of uh, the economy. So clearly that was not a particularly good idea. Anyway, the, the author is, um, you know, with humor and with uh, a good amount of information references, goes through these, these ideas. And in the process, it teaches you both about, you know, basics of economics, which I would think it's, it's of general interest to people, but also about economics as a profession. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, sociology it, of economics. That's right, sociology of economics, and also to some extent epistemology of, of economics. That you know, a lot of people, frankly, including myself, do have this impression that economics is just you know, it's either entirely theoretical, when, when in which case it's basically pure mathematics, uh, which is fine. But then when it comes to actual applications, economists don't necessarily know what the heck they're talking about. Now, as it turns out, that's not quite fair. They do know what they're talking about, except that occasionally. There are other forces that come into, or perhaps more than occasionally, other forces that come into the field and sort of help the, the field forget temporarily that they actually had learned the lesson. Uh, and the lesson need, needs to be relearned all over. The, the thing, of course, that makes this somewhat tragic is that usually the lesson is learned on our backs mm. as when there is a you know, collapse at either at national level or, or a worldwide level. Anyway, so it's zombie economics, how that idea is still walk among us. Oh, it sounds really interesting. And upon uh, hearing your explanation, it's obvious that that is what I should have expected the book to be about. But I will admit, when I first heard the title Zombie Economics, I thought it was going to be about how zombies respond to incentives. Like, like, <laughs> like if, if the price of brains goes up by 10 cents, do zombies consume less brains? Well, you <laughs> would, they would have us. to, right? <laughs> All right, we are all out of time. So this uh, concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.